So I don't know if, um, for you guys if you um, if you're like me, like I'll I'll watch a, a Netflix documentary or something like that, and seeing their passion about whatever their t- whatever story they're telling makes me go, I should care about this, I should want to do this, like I should want to know what they know because they're so passionate about it. Now maybe for you, I, I want you to kind of think through. the the way you process some of that stuff. Like when you see somebody who's so passionate about something, they don't just talk about it, they live it and it spills out of them. They just are always about it. It's made you go, huh, I well, should I care about that? Like right now on Netflix, like the top 10 documentaries will have you questioning your eating habits, your exercise routines, your investment in cryptocurrency, whether or not you should befriend an octopus to change your life. Like, I'm telling you, this is all on Netflix right now. Like, you look at this and go, man, I really need to befriend an octopus. Like, I have got to be best friends with an octopus. It'll change my life. It'll make me a better person. Like, you can do this right now. Like, when you see somebody who's passionate about something or when you see them living it, you begin to go, I should know what they know. Like, I really need to know something that they know, because I, cl- I clearly don't know that, but they do. The disciples were no different than us. The disciples would often see Jesus go away from them. And see, here's the thing. When the, when the scriptures say that Jesus went away from them, he could have actually just been 15 feet away from them. It doesn't always mean that he's going way up into these mountains on these long treks. He could have just gone, you guys sit over there. I'm going to go right over here and pray. Just stay over there. I'm going to pray here. Like, so a distance could have been 10, 12, 15 feet. And in the midst of that, they would watch Jesus engage in prayer in a way that they were like, I want that. I need to know what he knows about prayer. Luke 11 verse 1 says this. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Now, I need you to know that these disciples, they weren't clueless to prayer. It's not like this is the first time they'd ever seen somebody pray, and they're like, oh my gosh, what is that? I've never, I don't even know what that is. As young Jewish boys, they would have grown up used to prayer. They would have grown up used to seeing it from small children all the way up. But here's the deal. Historically... There were two things about prayer that would have caused the disciples to say, Jesus, what you're doing is different than what we're used to. The first thing was Jewish prayer, very, very, very formal. What I mean by that is because God was seen as holy, it was this very ritualistic approach, repeating the scriptures, only praying in Psalms, only praying in this way, only praying these things. And so it was this rote routine that many of them felt unprepared to do. I don't know these words. I don't know all the words. I don't know the things to recite. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. And you, you and I both know, when we give in to formality and just say it's formal, it's this routine, is our heart really there? Like we just quote things, we just quote things. We become robots. And so there was this formality to prayer in the Jewish way of living, you just did it. It was a rote routine. 
But the second thing about Jewish prayer in Jesus' day, and it's still to this day, is often the prayers were recited in Hebrew. It is the language of the Torah. It is the word, it's the, it's, the, it's the language that was captured in the scripture, and it was what people prayed. But Hebrew was not the language of Jesus' day. Aramaic was. Aramaic was the language that was picked up while the Hebrews were in Babylonian ex- exile, and so it was like this merging of phrasings and words, and Aramaic was essentially the language of the people. It was the street language. It was the heart language. And so prayer, when it was done, if it was done in rote and routine ways, people often felt like, I don't even, I don't even speak that language. I tell you this, because we're the exact same. You and I will begin to question, well, am I even qualified to pray? I don't even know the right words to pray. It's why when you're the pastor and you go visit someone's house, the pastor always prays, right? You're the pastor, you should probably bless this food because it'll be doubly blessed because you're a man of the cloth, you must pray. Apparently, I did not understand the trickle-down effect that being the pastor has your oldest child also ends up praying at his friend's house when they have meals. Well, you're a pastor, kid. You should probably pray. Zeke was like, you know that they asked me to pray too, right? When I go over to friends' houses, right? I was like, I'm sorry, bud. Comes with the territory. But part of our, our, resu- our, our reasoning for not praying is we just, we don't know the language. We don't know how to speak it. And so we end up going, is it even worth praying? You see, that kind of thinking always leads to us praying less. But Jesus has other plans. Jesus was not praying in set forms and using vows and dimes and post-hastes and things like that where we end up going, what? Like, and that's what I've always been amazed at is when I sit with people who they talk one way and then when they get in their prayer time, you know what I'm talking about. They change their voices, right? Most Holiest Father, thine goodness to us is wonderful. Yeah, so you ready to go to that Caroline Panthers game? Like, that's the strange, weird, I'm like, what are we doing? And the disciples probably felt that. They're like, you're, the way you're doing it and the way you're talking and the way you're acting doesn't match up with who you are. What is this about? And the confusion that it sets in. And so the disciples were wondering, And watching Jesus, as Jesus prayed, there was a relationship. And there was almost like this this heartfelt needs that Jesus was able to bring to his father and be able to commune with his father, to be able to speak to his father as father. And you and I, as we read the scripture, we end up going, why isn't my prayer life like that? Why don't I walk like that. And Jesus does give some words to them in Matthew chapter 6. He says, when you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them. For your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. Pray like this. At staff meeting this week, Brian brought it up. He was like, Jesus says, your father knows your needs. Is he trying to say, hey, then don't pray? No, he's saying, because he does know your needs, you should pray. Totally different mindset. Jesus changes the way we look at things 
when it comes to prayer. Prayer not being about repetition, but being about a heartfelt, need-meeting, family-type relationship where we bring our requests to God. Luke 11, verse 2. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. We don't have time to do this teaching on, this, on the Lord's Prayer, this abbreviated version this morning. But if there are three words that I can tell you that Jesus wants us to walk in when it comes to our prayer, it's our desires, it's our dependence, and it's our deliverance. It's our desires, it's our dependence, and it's our deliverance. And the amazing thing about this is when you're saying, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done, that is the cry of a Christ follower. Someone who does not follow Jesus is not going to pray this prayer. You want to know why? Guess whose kingdom we want. Guess whose name we want. Our own. The prayer and the cry of a believer is, God, your kingdom and your name. Guess what happens when you begin to pray those things? It's not like you're going to make his kingdom come and his will be done and his name be bigger. It's going to change in your heart that you're going to want it more. That is one of the biggest problems we have is because we don't want his name and we don't want his kingdom. Even in the church, we will dress it up as if we do. So we come to church because really we're just wanting God to bless our kingdom and our name. And if I can just add church going to it, then maybe he will. First thing Jesus says is, Father, Huge shift, dada, daddy. We think that's so, so unrefined, uneducated. No, it's the heart cry of our prayers. So we come to him because he is a good father. But our dependence as well, give us this day our daily bread. It's not just talking about that physical feeding. It's talking about sustaining us for life and faith. So where's our dependence begin to shift? We want his name and his kingdom to come. Oh, we start to depend less and less on us and more and more on him. But then that last part, that forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us and lead us not to tempta- into, tem- into temptation. It is deliverance. It's freedom. We want freedom, right? Like we live in a culture that's boasting to be free. You've got to unshackle yourself from everything. That means God. That means the man. That means the government. That means this. That means like you got to be free. You got to be able to do it. You... And you just become a slave to trying to be free. Jesus has given us the formula for freedom. It is to know forgiveness of sin this way, and it is to release people from their sin against you this way, and to not get tied up in slavery again by falling into temptation. Desires, dependence, deliverance. This is the way to real life. But Jesus, through this abbreviated version of prayer, has changed our perspective. It's not about our activity. We always focus on our activity. Did I pray today? Did I say it right? Did I do the right thing? Did I say it enough? Did I say it big enough? Did I say it loud enough? Did I, have I done everything right to, do, to, to, to be qualified to pray? Have I done everything? I mean, and we begin to focus on the activity of prayer rather in the character of God, which is what we're invited to do every time 
we pray. And Jesus emphasizes this with a story. And I believe this is how the story goes. Bro! Bro, you up? Bro! What is it, man? It's like midnight, bro. Bro! You'll never guess who came to visit me tonight. You're right, I won't, man. It's midnight. I'm not playing your guessing game. Bro, guess. No, not guessing. What do you want? Little Johnny from back in the day, bro. He came and visited me tonight at midnight. Dude, bro, you, you gotta come. You gotta see Johnny. You know Johnny from back in the day. What Johnny? Johnny Muscles? No, the other Johnny. The other Johnny, bro. Johnny No Neck? No, the other Johnny. Johnny Fast Feet. You remember how fast he was back in the day? Bro, he's visiting me tonight. What do you need? Bro, so I don't have any bread. So could you, could you hook me up with some bread? I need to just... Like he's visiting, he's a guest, I need some bread for him. If you could just take care of that, that'd be awesome. Bro, you need money? No, dude, I'm not that kind of a schmuck. I just need some bread, bro, bread. Like for the tummy, bro. Bread, bro. Bro, bread. Hook me up. All right, look, I don't want you to go back to Johnny with no bread and then you'll tell him that I didn't give you any bread, so... Look, I'll get you the bread. I'll get you some bread. Bro! What? You my bread, bro. You my bread, bro, for life. I'll never forget this as long as we live. Bread, bro. Bread, bro. That's it. That's the story. That's, that's how the story goes. Like, he wanted bread. He needs bread. His bro gets him some bread. Now I want you to listen to how Jesus ends this story. Verse eight, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. We'll talk about that word impudence that I just read in just a minute. But I wanna give you a little context for a stranger showing up in a village at midnight. At the first indication that you were going to have to play host to a guest, you would present bread. Bread would be presented because it was central to every meal. It was always available. It could be used as a spoon or a fork. It was always available. If you presented stale bread or worse, no bread, guess what you just brought on your house? Shame. Now, I know we don't understand honor shame culture because that's not what we live in. We, We do live in it. We just don't know it. But honor-shame culture, when it comes to a community, is a very big deal. So when a visitor comes at midnight to one house, it's a whole village problem, right? If this one house, this one family is not prepared to receive a guest, guess what they do? They go ask their neighbor, yo, we need some bread. (laughs) We've got a guest, and we need to provide. It became a village issue. 
Now, in poor villages around the world, and even in Jesus' time, there were what known as shared ovens. And I don't want you to think like the oven in your kitchen. I want you to think like this, this metal, this dome kind of thing, whether it be stone or metal or, 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 or an iron of some kind. But what would be done is you'd set it over fire and it would heat up and you would be able to bake bread on this. And in poorer villages, they would share that oven. It would move, it would rotate from house to house. So at the end of the day, because these ovens were left outside, you would know who was baking fresh bread that day. Like you would know whose turn it was to bake the bread, whose turn it would be to be the, the surprise guest supplier of bread. And so when you go to the door, this might have been the situation. There might have been, uh, you know, one of those shared ovens out front. And so when he goes to his bro's house, he's like, bro, I see you've been baking today. Hook me up with some bread, right? Maybe that was the situation. But the ultimate desire of the community was to not bring shame on their homes, right? Because hospitality played such a huge role in the life of the people, now, here's where the story gets interesting, and you're going to have to word nerd out with me. Like, I love to nerd word out. Go there with me just for a moment, okay? Now, in your Bibles, it's often translated persistence or boldness or even shameless persistence, right? Like, it's this shameless persistence that somehow the man, the neighbor gets the bread, right? And that is the way we often read the story. Like, if we're persistent in prayer, we'll get the bread. He'll have to give us the bread. Even though he's mad at us for showing up at midnight, we're going to have to get the bread. Now, did Jesus teach about persistence in prayer? Yes, he did. Hey, judge, we, we talked about that already. We've already been down that road. He does. There is something about being persistent. But here's where things get interesting. Read verse 8 again. I tell you... Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his anadia, this is the Greek word, okay? He will rise and give him whatever he needs. Leave that verse up there for just a second, would you? The question is, who is he? And we're supposed to ask that question about this story. We are supposed to ask the question of who is he? He. Later translations would suggest that the he is the shameless persistence of the neighbor who needs the bread. The earliest translations, the Greek, which I love to go back to in personal Bible study, I want to encourage you, I do not have a master's in Greek or Hebrew, but I, I lean on the shoulders of those who have, okay? In the Greek, the word anadia means without shame. Whenever you add an before, adia, adia means shame. Add an in front of it, that cancels out shame. So ultimately it means without shame. All right, so you're wording, nerding out with me. It's okay, you're still there. You're, we're, we're together. Say anadia. Say, say it. Anadia, anadia, anadia. Say it, say it, say it. It's good. Just say it. Just say it. It's good. It's a good word, right? Okay? Without shame. Many theologians, and I had to look this up just to make sure, believe that because it was left ambiguous, meaning it wasn't attached to one or the other, why he is in question is they believe the he is connected to the neighbor who's in bed. 
it changes the element of this story when we look at, without shame, the neighbor will get up and he will give the bread. See, you and I, when we hear that phrase, without shame, they have no shame. We like to think of it in our American eyes, right? They have no shame, right? Like, they'll do anything. They have no shame. That's what we think of in America, right? They don't even care what people think. They have no shame. In Jesus' day, to be without shame was to be a person of honor. And this is what you wanted to be, a person of honor. And in this story, you see that in an honor-shame culture, one who acts in this way will not bring shame to a community, to a family, or to an individual. And this story takes on a new light as you continue the rest of this story, the rest of this teaching, when it points not to the persistence of the neighbor, but to the willingness and the honor of the person in the bed. The rest of the text makes so much more sense. Listen to the rest of Jesus' teaching. And I tell you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. If our ask, seek, and knock is based on God's honor, then we better keep it up. If our ask, seek, and knock in human forms, we are flawed and sinful and we still give good gifts every once in a while when we figure it out, we better keep asking because he is honorable, true, powerful, gracious, generous. Verse 13 brings it all into perspective. And he says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? I love this phrase in Jesus's mind because he knows how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And here's the point. If God will give us our primary need, our most important need, his spirit, his presence, that's what we need, folks. I need you to hear me more than anything else you think you need in this world. It is walking in active understanding that he is with you. That is what we need more than anything else in this world. And if that gift he is willing to give, which next week we're gonna talk about it, it's Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out, they prayed, God answered, gave his spirit. If he will do that, then he will take care of all your other needs. If he's willing to give us what's most important himself, then yes, he will guard us from temptation. 
then yes, he will forgive our sins. Then yes, he will provide for our needs. And you better believe because he gives his spirit to his people, his kingdom will come and his name will be honored and glorified. Our prayer life is not built on our activity of prayer. It's built on the character and nature of God. Jesus changed the focus of the disciples in prayer, not because of who they were even. It's not because they had some status before him that they were able to pray. It's because of his character. It's not because of their performance of prayer. It's because of God's character. It's not because of the quality of their words. It's because God is good. As the team comes and we can continue in worship, because of these words that Jesus would speak to his people, I can see Jesus sit down with the disciples. I can see him sit down. I can see Jesus lean in real close to the disciples and say, I know you're gonna be tempted to believe God is not good. I know you have been through some of the craziest circumstances in your life. And you are gonna be so tempted to believe he is not good, but trust me, I know him. He is good. You gotta knock, you gotta seek. You gotta ask. I know that because of some of the circumstances you've walked in, you're gonna believe that he cannot provide for your needs. But I know him. You gotta keep asking. You gotta keep seeking. And you gotta knock. You are gonna wanna ask my Father in heaven. I promise you, he's good and he's powerful. And I know life is gonna tell you all the opposites of that, but you gotta take my word. He is able and he is good. See this, this teaching on prayer isn't that you should do it more. This teaching on prayer is to change our perspective of who God is. And I absolutely believe if you have views of God that do not align with what Jesus says, you won't pray. That's where this, that's, that's why this is a big deal to Jesus. Because a life without prayer means we are taking control and instead of ask, seek, knock, we'll do it ourselves. We were made to walk in relationship with God in a way that we put everything else off to the side. Ask, seek, knock is not just about Jesus being creative and rep repetition. Each of those grow in their aggressiveness towards our approach. To ask, you know, I, I was trying to think through this process, but as a, as a college student, I remember there'd be times a college professor would say something and I'd raise my hand and I'd be like, 
whoa, 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 wait a minute. What about, and I'd ask the question, right? And the college professor who thought they were super smart, right? Gives you an insignificant, un, uh, I mean, I was not happy with those answers. So guess what I did when after class was over? Not just asking, guess what I would do? At Georgia State, people would be like, dude, you wanna go to the quad and play some hacky sack and eat some food? No, dude, I gotta follow this. I gotta follow this conversation where it's gonna go. I'm gonna seek out my professor. I'm gonna go find his or her office, right? I'm gonna seek it out. I'm gonna put other things aside and I'm gonna seek to find this answer, right? And then there's no turning back because then you knock on that professor's door, right? It's just you and the professor, one-on-one, right? But you've set everything aside, but it started with an ask. Then I seek, I knock. I'm gonna get the answer I want. I'm gonna hear what you have to say. But we get to ask, seek, and knock, not a professor who may or not know anything, <laughs> right? We get to ask, seek, and knock a God in heaven who is better, who is more, who is all-powerful, who is generous. And how do we know he's generous? He gave his son. Will he not give us everything else? How much more? How much more will your heavenly Father pour out his spirit on those who've asked. Father, this morning as we continue in worship, singing these songs that, Lord, confessing we can get so rote and routine in them, would you awaken our hearts? Would you enlarge our hearts? Would you open our eyes to your goodness and that, Lord, your goodness and your power fully displayed in Jesus on the cross and his resurrection alive. Thank you for being our bread, bro. <laughs> Thank you for providing us with the living bread that is Christ Jesus. May Lord, our feast no longer be on the things of this world, but may we feast on the things of the kingdom. Wake up our hearts. It's in your name we pray.